Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features writers David Mura and Soon Yung Shin at St. Paul's Marion Park Library as they come together for an evening of conversation about the Asian American experience in Minnesota. David Mura is a multi-talented poet, novelist, memoirist, and playwright. His four full-length poetry collections to date include After We Lost Our Way, winner of the 1989 National Poetry Contest, and The Colors of Desire, winner of the Carl Sandburg Literary Award. Mura's first memoir, Turning Japanese, Memoirs of a Sensei, gained distinction as a New York Times notable book. Soon Yung Shin is a Korean-American poet and educator. Her poetry debut, Skirt Full of Black, received the Asian American Literary Award in 2008. She is also editor of the upcoming essay anthology, A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minnesota, which debuted in February. Thank you. Thank you for coming out tonight. Um, thank you, Bailey, for that kind introduction. Um, when Club Book asked me to appear here and, and appear with another Asian American author, um, I immediately thought of Sun Yung Shin, both because she's a terrific poet, but uh, also because of the other work that she does. And because um, this book, uh, she edited this book, which just came out, uh, A Good Time for the Truth, Race in Minnesota. So um, I'm going to ask Sun Yung to just read a little bit from the introduction, and then I'm going to ask her a couple questions about the introduction, and then we'll just move forward from there, okay? Thanks everyone for being here. It's nice to be in the library basement. It's like being in the subconscious of civilization. Um, so, and thanks to Minnesota Historical Society for taking a big risk and really investing in this conversation that we need to have on a broader scale in Minnesota. So I'm gonna read, this is a super long introduction and I am not going to um, read it all, but I will read, um, I'll just read the first page and a little bit, just to give you the entry. So pretend like you've just bought this book and you're holding it <laughs> in your hands. <laughs> um, you hold in your hand a book of visions, memories, true stories, shock, grief, dreams, 
activism recognition, a call for us to listen and learn about one another's real lives in Minnesota. It is time for this book. It's always a good time for the truth for those who have often been spoken for and about to speak for themselves. The voices in this anthology provide a forum, a multifaceted, dazzling view of life in the state beyond the stereotypes, under Minnesota nice, and into the <coughs> possibilities for our future. People of color are the fastest growing segment of Minnesota's population, but is Minnesota a state that understands race? What does it mean to be raced? Although race is not a biological or genetic reality, it nonetheless continues to be very real in terms of its influence on the lives of indigenous people and people of color. What are those effects and what do they mean for people's lives? This anthology begins to answer those questions, but it is not meant to address every aspect of race and culture in the state. No book could nor are the contributors meant as a group to represent or speak for every ethnicity and racial group in Minnesota. Not only would that be nearly impossible, it's not desirable. This is merely a small but powerful selection. As the first book of its kind in Minnesota, it is one wave in a larger movement toward equality. It is here that those in the minority stand in the majority under the spotlight. Their stories are front and center. Please consider them on their own terms and know that each author is but one individual. One essay by one Minnesotan connecting with another Minnesotan at a time, book in hand, words on the page. These contributors may, however, speak with the collective intergenerational wisdom and grief and loss and strength and joy of one or more communities. All of us alive today are the product of our ancestors' survival and regeneration. When we work for freedom, we stand on the shoulders, sacrifices, activism, reflection, self-knowledge, and persistence of those who come before us. These writers have stepped forward and have been included here because they are established or emerging creative writers who have long been committed to writing and working creatively on issues of race, culture, and social justice, struggling together toward a fair and vibrant civil society in Minnesota, a goal which must include the naming of and dismantling of racism. I'll stop there. Okay, so my question for you is several fold about the anthology. First of all, what made you decide to do this anthology and um, what did you learn about Minnesota and the writers of color here by doing this anthology and what surprised you, if anything? And then how do you feel this anthology fits in with the conversations we're having as a nation about race today in 2016? Um, you know, for a long time I've wanted to, this anthology had seeds um, about a decade ago, after, shortly after my first anthology, um, Outsiders Within, which is also multiracial and the first multiracial book on transracial adoption, as well as multinational. Um, I, one of the things that came out with this is how the, the, the great diversity under, you know, transracial adoptee or under people of color or um, these broad categories that uh, aren't necessarily that useful when you're inside them. Um, and 
I was having conversations with other writers of color about how there weren't, there weren't um, places for people of color to have conversations among themselves about our differences, about our conflicts between us, um, as well as how we are negotiating through the larger world. Um, it seemed like any conversation in America was very polarized, black and white, and it was very, when people of color were asked to speak, if they were asked to speak, it had to be very outward facing. Um, a lot of those were very much about, well, how, how do you relate to um, whiteness? So this, this book, um, I tried to get some things rolling and it just didn't seem, there wasn't enough momentum. There weren't, there weren't enough conversations in the state about race 10 years ago or even five years ago or four years ago, but maybe two to three years ago, I started seeing more mainstream media outlets and more mainstream um, public intellectuals talking about race. Um, and health disparities started to be reported on by uh, places like NPR and Star Tribune. The quote unquote achievement gap became very front and center in our schools. Um, I'm sure it was in, in no small part because of the conversation that emerged around our president um, seven years ago, but it really started to change here in my perspective. And I'm not from here, although I've lived here for 20 some years. Um, so I really noticed it. I really noticed the difference from when I moved here and then this kind of plateau of not talking about race, race being totally taboo, to really starting to see some cracks. And um, I had long admired the Historical Society Press for its work with the um, indigenous writers and their commitment to really getting to the truth and getting to um, real history and not whitewashed history and working with writers to, to put forth their perspectives. So that's when I, I approached Anne about this idea. Um, I looked first for, well, has there been anything else like this in book form? And I'm just partial to books. Um, and there wasn't, there had been some anthologies by like the Humanities Commission, but they were amalgamations of previously published works and newer works. They weren't specifically Minnesotan, even though they included a lot of Minnesotan writers. Um, and they were multi-genre, it was poetry and fiction and essays. They weren't all new essays, personal essays by um, career writers on this, on this topic. Um, so that answers one of one of your questions. questions. So <laughs> what, uh, let's just go with the one. What surprised you about the anthology? What surprised me? Um, they're so good. I mean, I knew that they would be good. Um, and also, editors make everything good and amazing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're so strong, and they're so um, personal. And I, you know, I don't have an essay in here because um, I'm very cautious about writing personal essays. Um, and so I was, I was surprised 
um, because some of these people, I haven't read their prose before. They may be mostly poets, but poets do everything better, so no surprise there. Um, so I was surprised by that, and I was, I was also hoping that um, there would be a lot of diversity of um, lenses, mm -hmm. and there was, there really was, so that was really good to see. And I was pleasantly, I wasn't shocked, but I was not sure because I really didn't know um, in the beginning whether I would even find enough people who'd mm -hmm. be interested in it, and then if they would really want to write this um, essay because it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit risky for some people, or it could, can be, yeah, so we'll see. Um, yeah, I really recommend this, that, not just because I'm in it or something, <laughs> but it really is a tremendous anthology and uh, just a bunch of terrific writers and, and a wide variety of different writers of different colors and different backgrounds. So you get uh, at least some of a picture of how actually complex and diverse the population is here. Uh, I, I see Bao Fi is in the audience. Bao, a great, wonderful poet, he has an essay in here about growing, a lot of it is about growing up in the Phillips neighborhood um, as, as a Vietnamese immigrant. Um, I'm gonna read a couple little things from my essay uh, and just talk about it. What, one is, when I first got here, like, Robert Bly was like the sort of king of Minnesota literature, right? And, and there, was, there was a type of poem which was, was a sort of, I call sort of a prairie surrealism written by James Wright and, and, and uh, Robert Bly. And these were poets I really grew up with. I mean, uh, Silence in the Snowy Fields was one of the first contemporary poetry books I got, Robert Bly's book. Um, but when I got here, I had grown up in a Jewish suburb. And when I was in high school, and a white friend would say, I think of you, David, just like a white person, I would go, yeah, that's what I want to be. Um, and there's a complex history to that, because my parents, I'm a third generation Japanese American. Uh, both my parents' families were interned during, in prison during World War II. Um, both my parents, who were US citizens, who were like 11 and 15 at the time, were in prisons in these prisons. And the reaction was to, uh, one of the ways I talk about the internment camps is, is if you're imprisoned for shoplifting, when you get out of prison, you don't shoplift anymore. So what happens if you're imprisoned for your race and ethnicity? And the implicit message was, don't call attention to your race and ethnicity. And a teacher said to my father in the camps, a white teacher, a school teacher said, when you get out of the camps, you should try to be not 100%, but 200% American. And my father took this to mean, just try to become as much like white middle class Americans as possible, lose any attachment to Japanese culture, um, um, and don't try to call attention to your difference. And that was the way I was raised. And it was only in my late 20s <clears throat> that I realized a complex set of series, oh, I'm not white. So then what am I? And I began reading books by African Americans, really, to find a language to talk about race. I mean, I was fairly well educated. I'd been to English graduate school, five years of English graduate school. But actually, I'd read no works by writers of color in my graduate school training. So any English professor my age could have gotten their English PhD without reading any writers of color. 
Um, so anyway, this is a long way of explaining that one of the themes of this essay is uh, what I call the surrealism of being a, a third generation Japanese American in Minnesota. Um, and one of the images I, <laughs> I have in the essay is years ago I saw Bonnie Raitt at the caboose. This is when I was younger. And I thought of going up and asking her to dance, but I chickened out. And, 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 and it, just the image of me talking to Bonnie Rayet in the caboose is not part of anyone's imagination about Minnesota, right? <clears throat> so I'll, I'll read uh, a, both a poem and a little bit of the prose. Um, part of my essay talks about my history with Miss Saigon which if you followed in anything of the protests about Miss Saigon that happened uh, about a year and a half ago, um, the Ordway brought to the Ordway Miss Saigon three times. Each time the local Asian Americans protested, um, the first time when they br brought it in, they brought some local Asian Americans to advise them, and every one of them said, don't bring it in, but they still brought it in. Then they brought it in the second time. So by the third time when they brought it in in 2013, <coughs> it, was a, it was a different time. And our protests, I, I think, were much more effective this time. And I can talk a little bit about why. But this is just about taking my daughter to the second Miss Saigon protest, um, which was at the Ordway. Uh, it, and it's from a long poem about Miss Saigon and, and my daughter. Taking Samantha to the protest. We're weaving through hard traffic this evening, late for the plush new Ordway Theater, the sky behind us, sheets of Palomino. This is your second Saigon protest. Like Dracula, it keeps coming back. Why play this game again, a part of me asks. This morning you read an essay I've written. You ask why, as a boy worshiping Paladin, the gunslinger, striding the hotel stairs, hipped with six guns. I never recalled the messenger hollering paper in his fist, pigtail flapping from out his black beanie. Telegram for Mr. Paladin! I try to explain. You nod, then say, I, I don't think whites like to talk about race. I look in your eyes, your sun-darkened face. Like Yeats's dancer, a blossoming bowl quickly unfolding, how soon your cells vanish. Where is that girl in the pink pinafore, replaced by the one who sliced her Barbies in parts to be glued and stacked in installation art, protesting such simpering plastic ways? replaced by this tween in lime green, perusing teen magazines, posting her walls with ads for Skechers, Felicity, stars from WB. Years ago, you asked why certain friends vanished. Those, if you recall, if at all, as strangers in photos, vague figures in our kitchen or yard, laughing as you waddled by or played your games. Dear, here's how it happened. Why is more difficult to say.
So I, I just want to do a little gloss on that poem. Um, the, the TV show, for those of you who are too young to remember, Paladin, it was, it was have, have Gun Will Travel, and Paladin was a, a gunslinger, and every, uh, the opening of every show is he would come down the hotel stairs dressed in black, you know, with six guns. So I wrote a poem about remembering that, and Rick Shiomi, who was for years the director of the Theater Moo, read the poem, and he says, do you remember what happened at the beginning of the show? And I said, yeah, Paladin comes out looking cool. And he goes, no, no, no. The opening is a Chinese messenger running into the lobby going, telegram, telegram for Mr. Paladin. And the question is like, I don't, I don't, I still don't remember that Chinese messenger. And, and so it was very clear, even at six years old, I understood. I don't want to be the Chinese messenger. I don't want to be associated with the uh, servant whose name was Hey Boy. <laughs> hey Boy, that was the name. So I knew as a kid, like, I don't want to be that. I want to be the, the gunslinger. I want to be the hero. I want to be the white guy. So that's what I'm talking to when I'm talking to my daughter. The other thing that uh, is referred to in this poem is during the first Miss Saigon protest, I started having arguments with all, with all of my white artist friends who couldn't understand why uh, I objected to a white person donning yellow face and playing a Eurasian, which we still have. You know, if you ever saw Aloha, em, I don't know if any of you know, but Emma Stone is actually a half Chinese, half Hawaiian. That's what she plays in that film. Uh, so, <laughs> which means I'm, act, you know, I could play somebody who's half white. I mean, I don't. Uh, um, so I started having arguments about that, and also about the plot of Miss Saigon and and the way it distorts the Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese people, um, and I ended up uh, writing an article about it in Mother Jones, and then. Subsequent to that article, having arguments with almost all my white artist friends and ending those friendships. Now, back in the early 1990s, when this happened, a lot of my, my white artist friends knew no other Asian American artists of color. So I looked like this crazy Asian. Um, you know, by now, you know, I get up and I read with younger Asian American writers, I'm certainly not the angriest person on stage. I look like the sort of, you know, a mild old uncle. Um, <laughs> so, so but, but it's just interesting because, because that, that's part of the literary history of this, of this town, which is unwritten. Just as Ty Coleman writes about Going to, going to the University of Minnesota MFA program and being told the first day in her essay, she writes about it, being told the first day that she should go to the remedial grammar and English uh, part uh, 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 of the university because her poems had grammatical errors. And Ty said, no, those are written in black English. And then, then the teacher said, well, if you keep writing like that, you're not going to get published. So, you know, one of the things that, that comes up again and again in this anthology is 
incidents that happened to all these writers of color, which simply tells us, like, you don't belong here, your culture doesn't belong here, and, and you're not part of us. Um, and it could be uh, Carolyn Holbrook going in to do a voiceover and told, make your voice sound less black. Uh, it could be the Thais example. It, it could be, you know, people's experience in neighborhoods just being called names and just learning very early on, like, you're different. We don't, you know, we don't want you here. And then, and then it's other smaller things. It's like, you know, honestly, my books are never in the local authors section. They just aren't. Bill Holm, who's a well-known Minnesota writer, he wrote a book about going to China. His book was always in the local author section. I wrote a book about going to Japan. That book is never in the local author section. That's just the way it is. Um, I didn't know I was going to be as vehement talking <laughs> about things, but I, got, I guess I am. Let's do it. Um, I, I will say, you know, I asked Sun Young about and ask a question, but I just want to say something about, you know, we talk about the conversation in race, and I just want to put my two cents in. I think th there are several things which have caused this, this time, and people are analyzing it, but I think one of the things is technology is caught up with racism. So Alex Payton and I, for instance, did a show years ago based on the video of Ro the Rodney King beating, but that was, that was a very random occurrence you know, in, in the early 90s. Now people have cameras and so you have, so everything that people of color have been saying years about the way the police have treated communities of color, which a lot of the white population did not believe, they have to believe it because now we have video proof. The other thing that has happened in terms of technology is you have books, you know, the best known is probably the new Jim Crow, where they really go after the statistics of racial inequities. And we, we weren't able to collect these sort of statistics, say, 20, 25 years ago in the same way that we can now. The other thing that's happened is you had uh, two, three decades of people really writing about racism, not simply as an example of uh, outward discrimination or prejudice, but as something which was systemic. And that, there are many parts of that definition of systemic, but one of them is acknowledging that people can have explicit conscious bias and implicit unconscious bias. And so it's not that a policeman, you know, flagging people down, you know, for minor traffic violations necessarily has to be consciously prejudiced against people of color to stop a disproportionate amount of people of color. And then if you add up the individual implicit biases of millions of people, that becomes systemic. Just like there are practices and rules which allow, which result in systemic racial imbalances, like the three strikes you're out, or Michelle Alexander goes over a case that um, went to the Supreme Court which said, the only way you can prove 
racial discrimination is that people actually say they racially discriminate. This was in a court case about the disparity in death sentences in Georgia. So there was a wide racial discrepancy in those death sentences, right? If you're black and you killed a white person, you, you are far more likely to receive the death penalty than if you're white and killed a black person or you're white and killed another white person. But they said that was not enough to prove uh, racial discrimination. You actually needed to have somebody say, each of the district attorneys or prosecuting attorneys actually say, yeah, I did that. I asked for a different you know, charge because I'm racially prejudiced. So that, that rule about what, what constitutes proof for racial discrimination seems like a neutral rule, but is actually something systemic. So, <clears throat> um, and then we have the changing, changing demographics of the country, which is everywhere noticeable. Um, so I, I, I guess since we're talking about, so Sumi Jung, you and I are members of the local Asian American community, and and you know this book represents the sort of uh, not just Asian Americans but also the writers of color. And I'm wondering, you know, do you see any particular differences about both the Asian American community here and the community of people of color, and the artists from those communities? Hmm. Um, yes. Mm, really hard to generalize. Um, I think the the invisibility of the Asian American community, um, and and not just invisibility, but the sense of total irrelevance. Um, and then during times of international conflict, you know, threat. And, and that's always hovering under the surface and economic invasions and, um, but you know, the reason that I, I keep trying to write books is um, that it's just a constant struggle against like, oblivion, you know. Mm -hmm. um, through, in a lot of intersectional ways, not just as, as an Asian American. Um, so as far as differences, I mean, I think probably because the Asian American population in Minnesota has now reached like its second or third generation, mm -hmm. right? So there's kind of a maturity, you know, um, people who came from, uh, were displaced from their their homes in Vietnam or Laos, and uh, they now have children, you know. Um, so, like, our friends uh, who were born outside the U.S. now, you know, our generation's having kids. Um, so I think that makes a difference. I'm not sure entirely what that's going to be. I mean, one of the books that I brought that I wanted to highlight that's not, it's not a local book, but um, it's by a writer, journalist, and activist named Sharon Chang, who lives in Seattle. And this comes from, uh, Lecce just came out, and it's called Raising Mixed Race, Multiracial Asian Children in a Post-Racial World. And I know she kind of puts that in, in quotes. So I think that, um, you know, dif demographic differences, like intermarriage rates for Asian Americans, mm -hmm. um, I think make a difference. Uh, the 
predominance of the Korean adoptee community and the ways that Korean adoptees, some of us have been able to parlay our proximity to white privilege into institutional positions where mm -hmm. we um, may have a little bit more amplification um, to, to be heard. So I think that's, that's a one difference that yeah, and, and there are a number of, it seems to me at least, the wider number of Korean adoptees in the artistic community. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think that is? And, and um, what, what do you think that the way they affect the local mixture of Asian Americans? Well, I think if I had to generalize about my generation, our, I think our parents didn't have any expectations for us. Um, that's a huge generalization, but let's just pretend like it's totally true. Um, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, we didn't, even though a lot of us are from working class backgrounds, like I'm first generation college, but we didn't have, we didn't have to prove anything because our white working class or middle class parents, they were in a country that was built for them, you know, and especially if they were Christians. So there wasn't a sense that their kids had to, we had to um, do anything you know, in particular, uh, in, except maybe grow to be like preachers. There's that whole strain of um, preachers' kids and stuff. But so that's from you know, and there's the stereotype of the child of Asian immigrants and the tiger mom, and you have to be a, a doctor and all of that. But it's also partially true. Mm -hmm. So I think that's you know, um, I mean, for me, my parents. Just the fact that I went to college is like that was a big deal. So they didn't have any sense of like, well, you you shouldn't be an artist or you should be this. They, you know, it just was kind of a void. So I think for me anyway, that's um, that's been. I have had no pressure to be anything <laughs> in particular, mm -hmm. you know. So that's kind of liberating. I think it's a priv it's a privilege, for sure, you know. So uh, you, you have mixed race children, I, as, I, as do I. So are, are there any ways that you particularly talk to them about the issues of identity and mm -hmm. how they how, like, contextualize how they think about themselves? Yeah, it's just been a constant um, from, you know, before they were born, I'm sure, talking and just naming racialized experiences, naming racialized environments, um, noticing who's in the room, mm -hmm. who's not in the room in, in different circumstances, um, watching media with them and then processing, you know, the, the, the storylines and characterization and, you know, they're just, it's very internalized with them now. We just um, got our, got a modem from CenturyLink, you open it and there's a, there's a, the image of the person on the instructions is an Asian man with glasses. It's looks like the half of his face, and he looks really happy because he's about to get his, you know, overpriced Monopoly internet. And you know, my son was like, "Hey, an Asian guy!" Like it's very exciting, <laughs> you know, because there's not that there's still not that many, and there's not much positive representation of Asian American men um, or Asian Americans. But as far as the mixed race. Thing that's very that is really emerging, you know, in terms of a national conversation of this generation, the millennials um, starting to speak for themselves about what that's like. So 
I can't, I can't say to them I know exactly what that's like, right? But um, talking to them about race and talking to them about um, just constantly challenging the, the Eurocentric, US-centric view of everything mm -hmm. and um, um, so that they haven't ingested just a completely monolithic view on mm -hmm. you know, America or we or, because um, they're not part of that conversation, yeah, yeah. you know, so it's, it's complicated, um, as you know, but I think it's just, it's also letting them know their reality, whatever their perceptions are, are valid. Have right? you experienced any blowback from them yet? Um, my daughter went through that phase, <laughs> but now she's so hardcore, you know, mm -hmm. about it. Um, so she went through a little phase, like everything's not about race. And now she's like, everything is about race, <laughs> you know. Um, and this generation's more intersectional. You know, they've like gotten the, the vocabulary that we've been all been working to build yeah. over these over decades that other people, you know, before us. So because of the Internet, they can read it themselves and they're empowered um, to connect horizontally, you know, and not just wait for some teacher or wait for college or um, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my daughter used to have those conversations with me. Not everything is about race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was the sort of one who wanted to feel like nothing that she thought came from her parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that everything she thought originally right. came right. from her. And then she went away to college and she majored in critical studies and social justice. And See? Yeah, then, then it was done. okay. She could learn it from her professors, not not from me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think for me, the other thing is, it, it, you know, for mixed race kids, it depends how you look. Definitely, it's like my daughter looks pretty much Asian. My my middle son, depending on the context, looks like any. He's mistaken for Mexican, for Tibetan. When he's with his Somali friends, people take him as Arab. Mm -hmm. uh, e even. <laughs> he doesn't understand. You know, a couple of people think he's black. You know, he has a beard, and um, and and then it's a situation that they're in. It's like he was in in the park with eight white friends and two friend, and a friend of color, and a couple of the kids were drinking. So the police came up and started frisking them, and after they got done, they they turned to the white kids and pointed to my son and the other kid of color and said, "Why are you hanging out with those kids?" So then my son was at a mainly all black party. The police came, let my son and the few white kids go, started frisking the black kids, and said to my son and the few white kids, why are you hanging around with those kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's like my, my middle son just, and, and then it was interesting because my youngest son looks more, I mean, if you look at him, it depends. Like, if he's on the basketball court, sometimes people will start saying Jeremy Lin uh, because he's actually actually pretty good. But um, he, it, like, he went down with a couple of white friends to the Black Lives Matter demonstration, you know, outside the precinct, and the, he, they got even though it was interesting because his other, it was he was with one white friend and one friend was half Tunisian, half white. And my son's half Japanese American, three quarters, uh, three eighths wasp, one eighth Austria-Hungarian Jew, um, 
And, and they challenged these three guys, uh, a young black protester came up and said, why are you guys here? And th because this was like a d day or two after uh, the, the three white guys had shot at, one of them had shot at the protesters. So in that, that instance, my son was taken for white. Although he said it made a difference because he said, I shouldn't have wore the mesh fishing cap with camouflage. That made me look like, like, a, like a duck hunting white guy, he said, if I, maybe if I hadn't had that hat. Um, but it, it changes their experience, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and how they, they feel about their identities. Right, right. Well, it's like the secret life of people of color. You know, it's, it's incredibly um, fluid, uh, which most white people, I think, can get as soon as they, you know, want to understand that because identity is, that's just how human experience is. But, um, yeah, it's incredibly fluid. It's incredibly taxing and, and for some people, you know, lethal, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and people, you know, people might know about um, the traditions of passing or, you know, different kinds mm -hmm. of disavowals and, you know, but maybe don't think about it in terms of mixed, you don't think of, you know, there's just not enough representation of mixed race people talking about that, mm -hmm. you know, um, in, in nationally, in national, ways or in pop culture ways, you know, we have like the Keanu who's mixed and Asian, mm -hmm. but was playing white characters. And now he's like playing a lot more Asian characters. And there's all these different, you know, he's sort of Asianing up as he gets older. <laughs> he's like been, he's been in all these movies where he's been, he's been the white savior and you know like in the matrix but he's got has all these Asian also mentors Buddha. and right and Buddha and you know, um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely, it's going to change for the better, I hope, yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about um, today and yesterday was about the axis of anger or the role of anger, you know, in our public and civic lives and in the role of art and literature and, what, what, and books and what that is, um, you know, as we're reading more about more analysis of the rise of authoritarianism in our political conversation in the U.S. and in, and in Europe, and, um, and of course, immigration, migration, dislocation, war, um, and then how people of color, anger for people of color to, to express, really even, the, even to just ex you know, express anything other than profound and continual gratitude to be allowed to live is read as anger. Um, but so we have all of these people at um, particular political rallies, but their anger is um, sanctioned, right? Or just, mm -hmm. it, I mean, by certain people. Um, so that's something that I, you know, I'm thinking about what do we need to do as responsible people? Um, what do we need to do uh, as artists, mm -hmm. educators, um, to, you know, bring people together without being really nationalistic about it, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, it's not like, oh, we're all Americans, yay, you know, get under the flag, it's big enough for everyone kind of thing, but in terms of, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, my adoptive dad is kind of like one of those people, mm -hmm. you know, 
he'll send me anti-immigrant, um, anti-Obama, anti-whatever, you know, emails. He's kind of gotten into it. Um, so he's caught up in the rhetoric. He's not, not motivated enough to, like, do stuff. Um, and also he's in a wheelchair. But, um, yeah, so it's like, it's, it's in my family. It's personal, you know. Mm -hmm. We were estranged for 10 years because, because of his ideologies and you know other stuff um, so I understand it he's not a bad person mm -hmm. well maybe he, he is some sort sort of a bad person but <laughs> not because of that <laughs> um, but you know I understand where it's coming from but the myopia and the sense of um, entitlement and then the under you know the economic um, Disenfranchisement. Yeah, I'm just, you know, I obviously don't have any answers, but I'm just really figuring out what is, what is it that we, what is it that we need to do? You know, just condemning people isn't helpful, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm hoping that this book can help me, you know, talk about that with people and work with other people about that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, one of the things I feel about this book is if you just have like one person talking about the issues that you face as a person of color, it just seems like one person and you can go, oh, that's just their subjective story. But when you have, how many writers on your? 17. 17. And they're all, you, you know, they're American black, Latino, uh, eBay is from, uh, Guinea? Guinea. Guinea, yeah. Um, Vietnamese, Native American, um, uh, and Robert Karimi is... Guatemalan, Iranian. Iranian. Yeah, Guatemalan, Iranian. And Californian. Yeah. And, and so you have all these different people <laughs> talking about their Minnesota experience, and there's really very similar things despite the vast, you know, really distinct cultural uh, immigration, uh, you know, identity issues that each of them face. Um. And we're all, you know, everyone in here is some kind of cultural worker, you know, has, has dedicated their lives to education, um, activism, you know, building institutions, working within systems. It's, it's not a bunch of people who are off the grid, you know, um, not trying to solve problems cross-culturally. So it really comes from, it's a very, to me it's very generous because this is, it's not like um, you're getting a bunch of money to contribute, right? It's not fame and fortune, but it's, we're all very invested in having a different state. I mean, it's very urgent for our children who are in pre-K 12. Um, it's completely immoral, the situation that our students of color are experiencing and the, pr the predictability of the, the dire outcomes, it's just wrong. You know, we have to mm -hmm. fix it. Um, so we have, to, we have to address racism multi, uh, in a multifaceted way. And, um, you know, you know, Alex and the Alex Pate has who doesn't have a piece in here, but he has a little quote on the front, and then he he's doing his new venture is the Innocence Project, 
Oh, it's the innocent. I, innocent. I can talk about. It. Yes. So it's, it's the innocent classroom. Classroom. And it, it, it I, actually, I'm. Uh, disclosure. I'm director of training for the innocent classroom. It's a program designed by the novelist and writer Alex Pate to deal with the um, racial achievement gap in education by training teachers to improve their relationships with students of color. And so it, it starts with the premise that um, there are all these stereotypes about students of color. And um, the, the students are very aware of this. They're aware, and we, 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 one of the things we do is we have just people list what the stereotypes are of student, uh, kids of color. And you get things like thug, violent, sassy, um, out of wedlock mothers, unemployed, welfare. And when you get this list uh, 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 on the, and this is what the culture tells kids of color. And kids of color know that, this is, that these things are said about them. And in certain ways, what we say is that these, these kids of color, they understand that the world presumes them as guilty. When you have disparities, say, in suspensions between white kindergartners and black kindergartners, can actually those five-year-olds be that different? So there's a racial profiling in certain ways going on in kindergarten in the same way. And so what we say is you have to look at these kids as innocent, not as guilty. And then we say what we want from the teachers is to know the children, each individual child. You know, because we say this isn't about diversity training or racism 101, this is about each individual kid. And we want you to find the good in them. And what we define good as is not in like, good versus bad or good versus evil, like being humble or being honest or generous. We define it the way Aristotle defines it, which is that for which all things are done, the primary motivation. And so, for instance, it, it, you can have a child come into the class and they may, say it's a new kid in class and they start causing trouble. You can either go, well, you know, he's a kid of color. Of course he's going to cause trouble. Or you go, who is this kid? What do I know about this kid? How much do I know about his or her life? How, and I have to know enough about this individual child, not only to just know like they come from a divorced family or they've moved five times in the last two years or whatever, but also what motivates that child? Is that child somebody who is rousing the class, but actually wants to be a leader. And you need to distinguish between somebody who wants to be a leader, say, and somebody who wants to be respected, because that, those are actually different motivations. Or somebody wants to be power. So we, we set this bar as you have to know, and the children, once they know that you know who they are, and once you go, you, I see who you are, and I'm going to start, I know you want to be a leader, so I'm going to start giving you little tasks so you can be a leader in the classroom, rather than a disruptor, the children change. Because if, if they feel like, because they, they, they grew up thinking society sees them as guilty. Society sees me according to all these scripts, so how can I be any different? Why would I be any different? This is what you think I am. This is all I can be. 
I mean, Alex talks about there, 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 there was a sign in North Side, uh, which was put up by well-intentioned people, which said 50% of uh, students in the Minneapolis school system, uh, black students don't graduate. And Alex said, what sort of message does it send to the kids? You're two black kids from North Side walking down and seeing that sign, you go, well, it's either me or you or both of us, right? And, and, and so part of his thing is it's a restoration of innocence that has been taken from these children, that the culture has taken. And one of the things you've seen here is, is essay after essay where somebody's talking about the way that these stereotypes have affected the way people of color think about themselves. And what, what, what we do in the, in, in the training is we have this backpack with anger, violent, you know, dropout, and we say, the kids come in with this backpack. You didn't necessarily, you didn't create this backpack, but you as a teacher, your job is to remove these bricks. Because until you remove these bricks, it's very hard for the kid to be present and learn. Because that's what they're fighting. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for David Mura and Sun Yung Shen and their work. In this book club, we would like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how these writers communicate the problem of systemic racism with people who either don't see it or don't believe it exists in our society? I think people have to want to learn, right? Like about anything, um, not just race, but of course it's very difficult because race is so um, profoundly tied to identity and, and, um, and also the, the United States um, as a concept, right? So, I really think that, um, you know, and this, this was the goal of this book is to, and we'll see if it, if it does that work, to ask people to just set aside judgment and, and just listen. Um, and then, you know, I would also ask people to believe them, you know, uh, uh, and not worry about what that means while you're just the number one, just believing them. Um, you know, my, so my adoptive dad, my dad is a double amputee because he's, he's been smoking since he was 12. I don't know, he's 74 and his, his cardiologist said it's just completely from the smoking, the circulation. Um, you know, but I was with him last March, he was having another surgery and he had all this incredible phantom limb pain after, you know, and in my mind, I, I really wanted to say, well, how can I help? Like, I wanted to say, like, it's not there, it can't hurt, which is ridiculous. So I didn't, you know, I knew better than to do that, but I, I just have to believe him, which is not to say that this is phantom pain, but, um, you know, when someone is experiencing something that you don't understand or you don't experience, I just had to believe him. That's, that's what he needed from me. I couldn't make it better, but I was gonna definitely make it worse if I said You're, that's not possible. Like, who am I to say that, you know? Um, so I think just that attitude, like if 
people can do that in other parts of their lives, if they can say, you know, if I can do this in other parts of my life, can I do that about this thing called race, too, and just, um, you know, really assume a non-judgmental attitude. We have to do that a lot in education because we're constantly asking students to confront things that are new, and they might be threatening, you know, ideologically just because it's different. Um, so we go through this thing called a critical protocol. It has a D-A-I-J, describe, analyze, interpret, and judge. And we put judge last. So let's say you're confronted by a work of art that looks really kooky to you, and students just, maybe they want to go right to judgment. Like, I don't like that, that's weird. You know, what is that? Yuck, that's not art or. But instead, if we slow down, you know, if we give, we slow down and we give support so that we ask the students to first just what do you see or what do you hear? You know, be very basic. Um, oh, I see the color blue. I see the color orange. Um, I see big letters. You know, and then you move, maybe move into analysis. Oh, I see some horizontal symmetry. I might, you know, might start using some language of whatever, whatever the text is and then interpret, oh, well, what do you think it means? Well, I think it might mean this. And then finally, or you know, a lot of times I just don't even want to ask students to judge whether they think something is good, bad, useful, not useful, because um, it's not really helpful when you're learning. You know? It's helpful if you're, you're, a, you're a judge or if you're an art critic at the height of your career or if you're you know, someone who's really steeped in something. But if you're new to something, just um, slow down. I, yeah. I, I think there are, we are in the middle of a change in the definition of what racism is. If you look up the definition in dictionaries, what it usually is is about conscious antagonism towards another race, a belief that one's race is superior, and an act of conscious discrimination. Okay, But that really isn't how racism works in our society. Okay, you take a statistic like, and they've done this study and it's in the new Jim Crow. I would just give people new Jim Crow and have them read the book and then find out, I mean, because it's all about the way our justice system works. So that if you smoke marijuana, you know, you're four times likely, if you're black, to be arrested. Whites and blacks smoke marijuana at the exact same rate. They're not arrested for, for that at the same rate. So. Uh, Liz, uh, uh, um, Alexander does in the New Jim Crow, she talks about the study about uh, cars being stopped for traffic violations on a New Jersey highway, right? So we rely always when we talk about race on individual experiences, right? But no individual has an experience of what the sum is of police practices on that highway. And when you have a statistic which says that blacks and Latinos are disproportionately stopped on that highway, no one person has an experience of that, right? Because there are thousands of people on that highway, millions of people on the highway, and, and thousands of people stopped. So how can any individual know if there's a racial discrepancy in that, right? No one individual. Now, if you're white, and you're driving that highway and you're not stopped, and you don't know any black people, 
why would you think that there's any discrimination going on? But if you're black, you know that your uncle or you or your cousin was stopped on that highway and you, you know, for a taillight or something or something where the cop didn't even explain to you why you were stopped. So you know other people who are affected by this discrimination. So there's a vast difference between your experience as a white person and your experience as a person of color. So you can't rely on like, I don't see any prejudice. My experience as a white person, I don't see anybody doing this because you can't see thousands of traffic stops on that highway. Nobody can see that. And then, as I said, the police who stopped, some of them may be consciously racist. Some of them may think, I'm going to stop. They get up every day and think, I'm going to stop blacks and Latinos because they're more likely to be criminals. Some of them may not think that. But as we know, people can have unconscious biases. And those biases don't need to be conscious to actually affect the way somebody acts. And we don't really have a language to actually talk about that. The other thing I would say is history. You know, the higher, I read this statistic today, the higher the percentage, uh, the higher percentage of number of, uh, percentage of slaves in a county in 1860, the more that county, the whites in that county will be Republican, oppose affirmative action, and express racial antagonism towards blacks. So when people say, why are you bringing all this stuff about slavery from the past? It's not past. It's present. When you have 38% of Trump supporters in South Carolina wish the South had won the Civil War, so we're not even talking people who believe in like equality. They're mourning slavery. Now, I understand that I, I'm sure everybody in this room, there's nobody in this room who wishes this, I have a guess, since you came to this, wishes the South, <laughs> wishes the South had won, this, won, won, won the Civil War. But you have to understand that we live in this country where there is, you know, and you think, well, they're just the fringe, right? But roughly 15 to 20, 15, you look at these states, 15 to 25 percent of the American population, white population is consciously racist. In other words, if you do a survey, would you object to a black person moving next door? 20 to 25 percent of the white population says, yeah. Would you object to somebody black marrying in your family? 20 to 25 percent of the white population answers yes. Now, you think, well, that's just, but that's millions of people. And of course, if you're a white person, maybe you run into these people, but you don't become friends with them, but it doesn't affect you. Right? It, do, it doesn't affect you. Where it, it, there's a great essay, you know, I, I refer to Ty's essay. Ty's essay is very interesting because she compares going to Alabama to visit a school she thinks she's going to. And what, what she says is, the black person that shows her around, they get along fine until she says to the black person, you know, it sort of creeps me out, all these Confederate flags around here, like on the trucks and on, you know, on the state house and all of this. And the black person reacts like she just doesn't want to talk about it. 
right? That's why Ferguson, Missouri was such a big deal because people have been called the N-word for years on that campus. And only in 2016 did the students there finally said, we've had enough. And so if you think all that has passed, no. The students, the, the, the students of color in the South have not yet actually begun to protest some of the things that we, we up here would think, well, why, why do people keep up with, you know? So it's, it's not, just like when I tell people the same rhetoric, let me read you what was said about the Japanese in 1920 in uh, Hollywood. And just think about this in relationship to Muslims. Japs, you came for our lawns. We stood for it. You came to work in truck gardens. We stood for it. You sent your children to our public schools. We stood for it. You moved a few families in our midst. We stood for it. You proposed to build a church in our neighborhood, but we didn't, and we won't stand for it. You imposed more on each us each day until you have gone your limit. We don't want you with us, so get busy, Japs, and get out of Hollywood. So this was in the 1920s, which sets the backdrop to the internment of Japanese Americans, which took place on two Native American reservations, and the head of the internment camps went on after the heading the WRA, the Wartime Relocation Authority, to head the Bureau of Indian Affairs. <laughs> So you had one government community which rounds up one group of color, destroys their community, and imprisons them, and then you, do, you had another government community, uh, agency which does the same thing to another group of color. So these things are not accidents, and people don't know, we don't know our history. We don't, we don't, the same rhetoric now that was in the 20s, you know, the yellow peril, is exact same rhetoric that's been used against immigrants in this election cycle. The past is, is still with us. And so I think, you know, history is just objective. You know, have them read when the, How the Irish Became White. Very instructive book, because the Irish were not white. I mentioned in my essay that, you know, I was asked a few years ago to write an article about Minnesota for the nation. And I was sort of surprised because I thought they'd ask somebody, well, probably Garrison Keillor wouldn't have done it, but it would, you know, I was surprised they asked me, but then I realized it wasn't somebody from in the state. <laughs> so, so I think that's why I was, because I don't think people would ask me to write an essay about Minnesota. But they showed me, that the nation did a similar anthology like in the 1930s. And Sinclair Lewis wrote, and he wrote about the strange new immigrants, the Swedes. <laughs> you know, I, I think those people in St. Cloud who are reacting so horribly against the Somali Muslim population there don't remember the time when they were the strange immigrants, when they were the outsiders, when they were considered the invaders. It's in our history. This audience member notes that some people use the argument that since many of our ancestors were immigrants to America, we have all faced a similar journey, and therefore dispute the idea that certain races benefit from having inherent privilege. Well, we have to deal with reality, 
right? As David is saying, I mean, we have to look at the particulars. Um, and so you can't, it's all these false, you know, we have to teach our students about um, all of these ancient, the ancient methods of persuasion and um, logic, right? Because there's all these arguments that can be made um, that are uh, sound good, like that. That sounds like, oh, that sounds logical. But then if people are actually looking at difference, and we have to just not fear difference, we just have to see that as that's, that's reality. Um, you know, the Swedes weren't displaced from Sweden because the United States military was dropping Agent Orange on them, you know, and shooting them indiscriminately as they tried to flee from the front. That, I mean, so, you know, people have to just look at, people have to stop thinking about the U.S. as the savior of the human race, for one, and look at it objectively um, in its, all its, facets and look at and really um, do some digging why what is its footprint around the world um, and why are people in motion um, because of other you know not just the US but um, other countries with more military and economic power what is what is the effect so we can't just make these false comparisons um, we have to learn about actual immigration. I just wrote an afterword for uh, a scholarly book on representation of Asian Americans in history textbooks, like main, the most used history textbooks in the US, um, most of which, or maybe all of which, come through the Texas textbook industrial complex. Um, which recently had a book which talked about how workers were sent from Africa. Right. Workers, right. not slaves. Right, immigrants, immigrant workers. Um, so it's just a whole, like it's a whole continuous analysis, um, but you're not gonna convince, you know, you're not gonna convince someone in one, in a couple of sentences. And then, you know, we also have to, um, people keep saying things until they feel heard. Right, and so if people are saying that, that must, that might mean that they are also there's something there that isn't being honored or dignified. Um, so you know, there's that. It's very, it's just very easy to get really um, ossified and polarized um, and oppositional. But it's not, it's not going to help us. Which isn't to say that we shouldn't have direct action and be oppositional, and um, but. You know, those kinds of conversations, I, they tend to just peop, get people entrenched. Um, so there's a lot of different ways, you know, but I think there's, there are a lot of resources for facilitated conversations. You know, like I uh, did the YWCA racial justice facilitator training. There's this, there are all these different kinds of support systems to give people a, um, you know, not safe, I don't really even the word safe, but a safer or just supported spaces and processes to experience discomfort without losing their minds and running away. Um, and so as a community, people have been doing this for decades.
decades and we have a lot of resources so they're actually there for people to to access once they decide I'm open to learning and I'm open to experiencing discomfort um, and I have something to con I want to contribute uh, my energy to making things better people have to come to that somehow first um, but there's a lot of, you know, I think the thing is like, you don't have to keep inventing the wheel with these individual conversations. You can refer people to um, resources or you can, you know, try to involve that person in different kinds of mediated conversations if they're interested. And if they're not interested, I don't, there's not much you can do about it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with David Murrah and Soon Young Shin at Marion Park Library. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Celeste Ng at 7 p.m. Monday, March 21st at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library in Woodbury. Celeste Ng is the author of the recent runway bestseller, Everything I Never Told You, a literary thriller centered around the trials and travails of a first-generation Chinese-American family. Amazon singled it out as the number one best book of 2014. Meet Celestine, get your questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoyed these free club book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make club book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in club book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it from Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.